You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. I am having a conversation here with Bob Murphy, who's a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. We're going to be talking about Austrian economics. I don't think that we on Real Vision have actually talked about Austrian economics in the depth that hopefully we're going to go into today. So, Bob, I really appreciate your talking to us and looking forward to the conversation. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And, you know, Bob, by the way, just so you know, I have uh, I have this trusty book here from the Mises uh, Institute that uh, I've read uh, many times. Uh, it is uh, Ludwig von Mises, uh, Gottfried Havler, Murray Rothbard, and then, of course, Friedrich von Hayek. And I think, uh, you know, those are some of the best names uh, to get a sense of the Austrian theory of uh, the trade cycle. Um, you're an expert in Austrian economics. Tell me, uh, you know, if you had to give the um, two-minute elevator pitch of how to describe what Austrian economics is all about, what would you say? By the way, your pronunciation of their names is better than mine, so kudos to you on that. Um, <laughs> so the term Austrian school, so it's a school of thought, just like there's the Keynesian school or the Chicago school that I'm sure many of your viewers are familiar with those terms. Um, the name derives from the fact that the founders were from Austria. So it started in 1871 with Karl Menger, who published a, a work on the principles of economics. And Menger is associated with two others in just standard history of economic thought with discovering what's called subjective value theory or ushering in this revolution, what's called the marginal revolution, from the old classical approach of explaining value and price to the new modern approach where you know, utility is subjective, it's in your mind, and, and prices are formed going from subjective mental evaluations um, through the market process. So that was the, the foundation of the school. Um, in terms of today, though, like to understand quickly what, what it is, the Austrians have a very um, individualist focus. So in other words, they try to explain everything, like even the business cycle, ultimately by reference back to the actions of individual consumers and business people in the marketplace. Uh, they tend to be very free market policy oriented, but you know that's that's the result of their understanding of how the market economy works. And so they think the government intervention was going to impede that that corrective process. Um, and then as far as you know what why should people study the Austrian school today? What's the relevance? I think the single biggest unique contribution they made that's relevant is their theory of what causes the business cycle. And so on that point, they're different even from the Chicago school who also tend to be very free market in their policy prescriptions, but the Austrians think it's government intervention and money and banking that sets up the familiar boom-bust cycle that characterizes market economies. That, that's a, gr a great description. And, you know, when you mentioned marginal revolution, I think immediately of the, the blog Marginal Revolution with Tyler Cowen. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that concept. Okay, sure. So, so the reason Tyler and Alex Tabarrok named their blog that it was a bit of a pun because they're saying what they want their blog to do is to you know do small and incremental improvements you know to to bring change so that but of course they're alluding to yes this this period 
you know, this revolution in economic thought. So again, it's it's associated in the early 1870s. It's Carl uh, Menger, William Stanley Jevons, and Leon Walras were the three people that are all co-credited with bringing in this new marginal revolution. So the the the, the quick version is. The old classical economists, people like Adam Smith, David Hume, Karl Marx, you could even you know, sometimes classify in this realm, they were explaining um, the relationship. I mean, they, they knew prices in the marketplace had something to do with human valuation. Like, like why do certain things have, you know, why do people pay a lot for a stagecoach or something? Oh, it's because it, it, you know, people value it. But there was a certain paradox there or an awkwardness where things like water had a low market price per unit whereas diamonds had a high price. And so why is that? Because you know diamonds are, are nice, but they're not essential to human survival, whereas water is. So it would seem like if you were trying to explain market prices or market wealth by reference to human needs, it, it didn't seem like there was a good fit. And so the marginal revolution had the insight to say, okay, because in any given market transaction, you're never in a position of buying all the diamonds in the world or all the water in the world. It's just making decisions on the margin. So like, think of you know people like like on a page, the margin is the thing on the edge. So that's right. what that term means. And so in any given instance, whether you have one gallon of water more or less, probably in the grand scheme doesn't matter much because typically you know you have plenty of water to satisfy you know your thirst and washing the car and stuff like that. Whereas on the margin, getting a gallon more of diamonds is going to make a huge difference to you. And so that's why uh, prices are determined on the margin. That that's how to explain the fact that something like diamonds has a higher market price than water does. So that, that's what the marginal revolution was. It was just explain, like, instead of explaining things in terms of entire classes, they realized, no, in any given transaction, there's choices being made on particular finite units of the goods. And then once you had that insight, the, the, you know, these alleged paradoxes just fall away and you could explain things much more straightforwardly. And, you know, when you say that, immediately it comes to mind, I was, uh, I think I was telling you bef right before we came on, I was looking through uh, some uh, some critiques on EconLog about Austrian economics. Brian Kaplan, who's a libertarian, came, he's a professor at George Mason. His name came up, and I thought it was interesting. He was talking about this concept of ordinal versus cardinal utility. And basically, when you're talking, you're talking about utility or what Neo- uh, uh, classical economists call, talk about the uh, utility function for individuals. And uh, the, he has some sort of debate about how do you express that utility? You know, when I want those diamonds versus the water, uh, you know, what's, uh, how do I, how do, how does Austrian economics think about how I classify which one's more important than another? Okay, right. So, so what happened in the, the progression of the history of economic thought is so as of like the late 1800s um you know so there, there's also in conjunction with just this development in terms of economic theory just to explain consumer behavior and how do market prices get formed there was also the philosophical current of utilitarianism you know from jeremy bentham and so um originally and this is true even like in menger and bumbaver who's like a second generation austrian they did have this notion of, of what we would call cardinal utility. So, so for people who don't know those terms, so cardinal means numbers like 3.2, 6.8, stuff like that, whereas ordinal is like first, second, third. So ordinal numbers are rankings, whereas cardinal is like normal arithmetic. So notice you can't do arithmetic or, yeah, you can't do arithmetic on ordinal numbers. It wouldn't make sense to say what's fifth minus second. 
that doesn't make sense. It's not third. That doesn't make any sense. Where, <laughs> right. Right. So, um, so what happened just, you know, just real briefly here is in economic thought, originally when people were trying to explain consumer behavior, they were linking it with this utilitarian notion of utils is like a, a, a measurable substance or a psychic intensity. So like, oh, someone gets a certain amount of pain and it would make sense to say, you know, hitting this guy in the arm caused three times as much pain as just twapping his ear as if it were a measurable thing, just like temperature or weight is a, you know, an ob objective feature of reality that has a, you know, a certain extensive measurement. Um, and so that's what they thought that, oh, the reason consumers spend this much on apples and, and not as much on oranges is because they get more utils, you know, psychically right. from the one versus the other. And that's kind of how we, even some of the early Austrians explained it. But by the early 20th century, economists and, you know, Austrians were like, I think in the vanguard is, but they realized we don't need that baggage because there's, there's a lot of philosophical problems with old school utilitarianism. Like how do you compare psychic intensities among different individuals? So economic theory was purged of that notion. And so, and so they realized, no, we can do all, all of consumer theory. We can explain when you go in the grocery store why you spend your money in a certain way and why if prices are lower, you tend to buy more units of the goods. And we can do all that stuff without assuming that there's this psychic substance called utility or happiness or, or whatever, or satisfaction that's actually measurable in terms of you know concrete or uh, cardinal units. So that... That that was the revolution economic thought, but mathematical economists, and so another characteristic feature of the Austrian school is they tend to eschew mathematical formalism, not because you know they don't know how to do math, which is like the common slur, but because they don't think it's appropriate to the study of economics. They think that's just like aping physics and chemists and and so on. Um, so, but the but the more mainstream economists they did want to be able to use calculus and to have models. And so you know, like your viewers who have taken a standard economics class, they might have done things like, you know, oh, you here's your utility function. And how do you solve it? How do you find the equilibrium? You take the first derivative and set it to zero. And that's what the consumer does. You know, that kind of stuff. Right, so they, yes. they wanted to have mathematical models of consumers and firms and so on to be able to, quote, solve the model. So again, this is mainstream economists, not the Austrian school. And so in that tradition, then, the the utility function has to be a cardinal thing and so um so that's and so, so what, you know what, yeah, so what kaplan was just i'm sorry just to finish so what kaplan was saying is the austrians recoiling from that say oh we're not like those crazy neoclassicals we don't do we don't believe in cardinal utility we're old school and no based on sound philosophical foundations everything can be done orderly and just so your the listeners get an example like you could talk about friendship and say, oh, I have my best friend and my second best friend, my fifth best friend. That kind of language is meaningful, but it wouldn't make sense to say, oh, my best friend has three times as much friendship for me as my third best friend, right? Like, it's not just that you say, oh, I don't know. It's like, that doesn't even make sense. So right. in the Austrian view, we can do economics just by ranking how much you value certain types of consumer goods without assuming there's underlying things. So Th that's part part of the distinction, and you know I, we can talk more if you if you want. But Kaplan was trying to like quibble and say, "Oh, mainstream economists don't really mean it. That's just like a, sh a shorthand." But on the other hand, plenty of mainstream economists say the Austrians are being old fuddy duddies. Of course, we know that a rich man gets more util or a poor man gets more utility from a dollar than a rich man. What's the harm in saying that? So it's 
it's sort of a we're getting hit from both sides as Austrians. On the one hand, we're saying, "Oh, come on, nobody means that." They they believe, and then the other hand, they're saying, "Yes, of course we mean that," and you're idiots for denying it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And, you know, um, I, I, with uh, at the risk of uh, going out of turn, because I, I want to continue to talk about the concepts that you're talking mm-hmm. about, I, you know, I think that's meaningful in terms of if you think about the 2008 crisis, because uh, one of the things that uh, people said when the great financial crisis happened is uh, how could who could have known that this was going to happen? Uh, and obviously, Austrians uh, did predict the crisis in many ways because of uh, the microstructure uh, being imbalanced. But, you know, w- when you use the precision that economics uses, the mathematical precision for, <clears throat> as an example, dynamic st- stochastic general equilibrium models, which were the uh, which are the the standard that people use, you wouldn't be able to predict that the recession was going to happen. And so you would have been uh, bowled over by the great financial crisis, whereas Austrians have a view which is not as precise in terms of these utility functions that was saying that actually in our model, uh, things are out of whack. Am I, am I uh, thinking about that correctly? Yeah, I think so. So here, I, the way I would put what I think what you're getting at there is I would say um, so mainstream economists, and I, you know, some people, some Austrians say, let's stop using that term because we actually are becoming more mainstream now. So like, let's not always just stipulate from the outset that we're obscure or something. But neoclassical, uh, you know, neo-Keynesian type people who are at Harvard and Yale and things like that, they, um, it's true. If you go read their journal articles, you know, they're really good at math. There's a lot of precision and so on in there. But yet, as everybody knows, as you alluded to, it's not like economists have the, a good track record the way the people in quantum physics do, right? So there's, like, quantum physics is nutty. When you, when you read about it and how they view the world, it's crazy. But the justification is, but experimentally, you know, these models talking about an electron being a particle and a wave at the same time, that kind of stuff, look at how well we match, you know, the predictions in terms of when you run the experiment with a particle accelerator and so on, or, you know, modern computers and whatever based on our understanding Whereas economists, it's not at all that, oh, yeah, economics sounds crazy, but look at how well we can forecast what's going to happen to GDP next year. They don't have that track record right. at all. They're terrible at it. And so, um, you know, we, and we can talk if you want about, like, what's the difference between the fields. So, yes, Austrians are saying there's something qualitatively different about the social sciences. For example, there's, there's not constants the way there are in the physical sciences. You know, there's a charge on an electron, the mass of you know, certain protons or what have you, you know, there's things like that in physics that at least we assume are constant. And that seems to serve us well. Whereas when it comes to the social sciences, there's so many moving parts, there's really no controlled experiment possible in the social sciences. And so that's why I would say it's so open-ended. It gives scope for people with different ideologies can cling to their view, no matter what, right? Like Keynesians and Austrians still disagree about what happened in the thirties. We still disagree about whether the Obama stimulus, you know, Keynesians say the Obama stimulus package created or saved X million jobs. See, look at the numbers. We're right. And the Austrians say, no, it destroyed jobs. Unemployment went up higher than you warned would happen without the stimulus package, right? And we're both making true. 
So it's like we need our model to be able to interpret what happened in reality, to, to parse the data. So because of that, you're right, Austrians tend to be more qualitative. And yet I would say, even though the Austrians are saying our method is different from like the physicist or the chemist, where it's ultimately experimental verification or falsification that's kind of the, you know, the, the criterion for success, even so, I would say the Austrians are better at anticipating what's going to happen. So for example, I personally in October of 2007, had an article saying the worst recession in 25 years. And I had a question mark, but I was using Austrian business cycle theory to say the Fed has blown up an, a, a housing bubble and a, more generally an asset bubble. The last time that they were this distortionary was in the late 70s. And look how bad that recession in the early 80s was. So I, writing 11 months before the 2008 crisis, was saying, I think we're in store for something that's going to be as bad as it was 25 years ago. So I didn't you know, I wasn't giving quarterly estimates of GDP growth because I, I knew that would be silly. Like, I don't have that kind of precision. But yet, qualitatively, because my understanding of what causes the business cycle, which I think was correct, I that was on my radar. Whereas these other economists who, on the surface, looked like they were much better scientists and more empirical, a lot of them had no clue any of this was coming. Right, exactly. And, and you know, uh, w before when we were talking, uh, when you were talking earlier, you mentioned the Chicago School, which I would consider to be, you know, a school of thought that is mainstream and actually really influences policymakers today. Uh, w what's the difference between Austrian economics and the Chicago School? Uh, what's your view? Okay, sure. So, um, so like I say, in terms of man on the street or you know people who just care about political policy battles, you can know, read National Review and stuff like that, or the Heritage Fund, they might think, that, oh yeah, the, the big thing is let's just beat up on those Keynesians, right? And so if, if from that level, the Austrians and the Chicago School typically are against stimulus packages and stuff like that, and and you know they don't want to raise the minimum wage, things like that. But fundamentally, so in terms of like the actual you know economic methodology and things like that. There are some pretty stark differences. So one big one is, just, yes, this issue. So the Chicago School famously, uh, Milton Friedman, one of its chief proponents in the 20th century, he famously argued that when it comes to economic models, it's fine to make false assumptions as long as he's saying the predictions that model gives you, you know, are are accurate enough for the issue that's under discussion. So he, so the analogy he used was. If you're trying to model like an expert billiards, play, you know, but like a, someone playing pool in a pool hall who's an expert, it's fine to assume that the person knows the laws of physics and to do, you know, momentum. And he hits the <laughs> even though even though, you know, in reality, you know, the pool hustler, the, he probably hasn't studied Isaac Newton. Right. It's just, you know, he's doing something subconsciously. But they say, oh, that's that's a decent model for that type of behavior. And so the Austrians have a completely different. They they think, no, we're giving correct descriptions of the economy. In other words, we start with the, 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 the insight that human beings you know, act, meaning they have goals and preferences that they try to achieve using their reason. They could be wrong, but the point is we're interpreting it, their actions as purposeful behavior. And then step by step, they build up things from there. And so the, it's the Austrian school, there's like, you can't say too much with precision, but you can say things like, oh, if the central bank or the banking system push interest rates below where they should be, that will cause investments to go to areas where they shouldn't go. So we don't know how big of an effect is that. You know, that would be a judgment call, but we can say, you know, with certainty, if you will, it's going to cause a distortion. So, so that's you know the the difference in terms of their method. Um, and then, like I say, in, in terms of specifics, the the big one is with the business cycle. 
So like the Chicago school thinks the problem, what caused the Great Depression was that in the late 20s and early 30s, the Federal Reserve didn't pump in enough money. Right. Whereas the Austrian school has almost the opposite view. They say, no, the problem was during the, early, the, the mid-20s, the Fed pumped in too much money that caused this unsustainable bubble. That's why the 29 crash was necessary. And then Herbert Hoover and FDR after him did all sorts of goofy interventions that prolonged the agony. Okay, so, so that's like a specific area where the Austrians and Chicago school are totally different in their explanation of what happened. And that's a profound difference. And, you know, I think that's where I wanted to go next in terms of you mentioned the the, the holy grail here in terms of interest rates and uh, what I would call uh, the microstructure. That is, is instead of thinking about aggregate demand in terms of the way that Keynesians think about it, we can talk about, you know, first of all, there's the concept of natural interest rates, which we'll get to. But you mentioned interest rates below the level where they should be. Uh, and I think that this is where where the rubber hits the road in terms of thinking about uh, recent events in the United States in particular and uh, across the world in terms of stimulating spending. Uh, and that's what maybe a Keynesian would say. But at the same time, an Austrian might say that you're building the wrong stuff. You're uh, the lower interest rates is causing the wrong things to happen and you're creating zombie companies. Can you explain that difference between aggregate uh, demand and uh, the microstructure in terms of capital investment being skewed uh, to different asset types? Okay, yeah, so great, great question, Ed. Um, so yeah, another difference that I didn't even mention to this point, I'm glad you, you highlighted it, is the Austrians, it, it's ironic because even though the knock against them is they're anti-empirical and you know they're simplistic or whatever. They're not as sophisticated with math as their uh, you know neoclassical colleagues. It's in in the the Austrian sort of model, if you will, of the economy. The way they explain the business cycle in particular, the Austrians have a disaggregated uh, approach, right? So that they'll have multiple sectors. They, you know, they might do something just for pedagogical purposes, say, like uh, dividing the economy up into multiple stages, like mining, manufacturing, wholesale, retail and consumption, things like that. Or, you know, starting at the farm and then all the different stages for the wheat's harvested and then it goes to the, the, the baker and then it goes to the grocery store. Things like that where just having this structure of production over time and then looking at, you know, if you had an economy that was originally in equilibrium and that kind of a structure where, you know, Things happen, the, the coal is mined, then it gets processed, boom, 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 all the way down the line. That takes multiple years, perhaps, to actually reach the final consumer. In that setting, then, what happens if all of a sudden the central bank decides to push down interest rates? Right. So in a Keynesian framework, at best, usually, they'll just have the difference between consumption and investment. And so they'll say, like, total output gets allocated between either consumption or investment. And they'll mostly say, oh, if we're in a recession... It's because there's a shortfall in demand and total output isn't as high as potential output could be. Let's lower interest rates to, to stimulate spending. And that's the way they look at it. Whereas in the Austrians, a lower interest rate doesn't merely cause people to spend more. It changes where the spending occurs. And so right. in particular, a low interest rate gives more impetus to long-term projects rather than the short-term ones. Um, and, you know, so people who are familiar with just standard accounting and present discount value calculations, like a 30 year project, if you lower interest rates from 5% to 2%, what 
the 30-year project will see a much bigger jump in its present value than a two-year project, right? That, that's the right, the, right. Yes. logic. And so in the Keynesian model, it's just not rich enough to handle it. There, there's no, you know, there aren't 30-year projects versus two-year projects. It's just all what's investment spending this year. Like it's an aggregate. Whereas in the Austrian ones, it's more disaggregated. And so because you see that distinction, you realize, oh, wait a minute, lower interest rates doesn't just cause more investment spending. It causes more investment spending in particular in longer term projects. So in the Austrian view, when the Fed, for example, in U.S. context lowers interest rates, yes, that might cause a boost in investment spending, but it's unsustainable because now entrepreneurs are pumping resources into these long term projects and there's not enough total savings to carry us to the finish line, right? So just because the Fed electronically creates money and buys bonds, there, there isn't actually more factories. There's not more farmland. There's not more people who know Java programming, right? All it's doing is rearranging resources. And so if you're now sucking them into long-term projects, you're going to hit a wall, like a, a real physical resource constraint. The, the Fed can't create more savings, more genuine real savings, just by creating more money. And so in the and, Austrian you know, view, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, the, for me, the allure of that, uh, as someone who was in the junk bond market uh, mm -hmm. at, at one point in time, is, is, is that I saw it you know, with my own eyes that the projects that we were uh, looking to have people fund uh, were, you know, when lower interest rates were there, you know, people were snapping those projects up, that it did have that skew. It did cause investment to move in one direction or another. And it makes me think about what you were talking about in 2007, which is at the end of a huge boom in housing. How would the Austrians have described, and how did you describe at the time, what was going on when the Greenspan Fed lowered interest rates to 1% and then kept them very low, uh, spurring uh, aggregate demand? How did you position that, and, and what were you thinking? Okay, yeah. And so, and housing is a great example of this this idea that you know even people who aren't in business, you know, or who are accountants that know about present this kind of thing, everybody knows. Oh yeah, when mortgage rates come down, you can afford more house, right? Like everybody knows that, like for a given monthly payment. And so, whereas when interest rates come down, it's not like all of a sudden someone's going to buy a computer that's ten times as much as at higher. You know what I mean? It's like a shorter term thing. You know, interest rates don't affect it as much. Whereas something real long term like housing there, the mortgage rate has a huge impact on what the present market value is of a given structure, right? So, um, so yeah, and I, I don't want to overstate, I was slow on the uptake in terms of perceiving that we were in a housing bubble. It was only like the summer of 2007 that I realized the, the problem, but other Austrians saw it much earlier. For example, Mark Thornton has a 2004 piece for the, for the Mises Institute called Housing Too Good to Be True. And there, it's almost eerie how much he, he anticipated saying housing's overvalued, there's going to be a crash. He even said how, um, you know, the, the, how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac might have to get bailed out by the tax. You know, it was, it was very prescient. Um, another thing I would encourage your listeners to go look up is called Ben Bernanke Was Wrong. And just to see how Ben Bernanke, it's a YouTube compilation, just showing at every stage in the crisis, Ben Bernanke was totally off of this. So just to show the, the distinctions. Um, but yeah, the the Austrians were saying low interest rates causes people like makes housing more attractive. So there's there's too many resources flowing into housing, and then of course there's a self fulfilling prophecy. Whereas as housing starts rising rapidly, 
other people get into that and then it you know bids it up even more. So there is an element there of, you know, we can say, oh, we think it's a bubble. Well, when's it going to pop? When it starts going down. You know, we, we don't know what's going to make it. So, But in this case, it was pretty standard Austrian business cycle theory where the Fed lowered the Fed funds rate. It was like at 6.5% when the dot-com bubble burst. Greenspan took it down to 1% by, I think, June of 2003, held it there for a year. And then from June of 04 onward, the Fed, every time it met, would raise it 25 or 50 basis points. Like, look like a staircase. They were going for a soft landing, <laughs> right? So, and remember, you know, they were calling Greenspan the maestro in the early right, yes. because, right, even though there was the dot-com crash and the September 11th attacks, housing keeps going up amidst the recession. What The maestro, this guy's great. But then, you know, as of 2007 and eight, all of a sudden, oh, the fact that he was pumping up housing, maybe that wasn't such a good idea after all. So that, I think, encapsulates the difference between, like, the Austrians and the Keynesians. The Keynesians always are thinking in the midst of a recession, what do we do to get out of this? How do we right. boost demand to provide employment? The Austrians are saying during the boom period, we're sowing the seeds for the next crash. Right. So, so that's kind of the, the, the distinction that the Austrians are saying when you're in a, a recession, ironically, you let it just clean itself out. Because if you if you, quote, fix the recession by lowering interest rates, you're just pumping us up for another crash down the road. Like, this is why we keep having these cycles, whereas the Keynesians, you know, blame just, oh, there was a wealth effect because people panicked. You know, they don't, someone like Paul Krugman explicitly said after the, the financial crisis, it doesn't matter what caused it, let's fix it first, restore full employment, then we can argue about, you know, historically what caused it. It doesn't matter. We need to, you know, prop up demand right now. So the Austrians, if the Austrians are right, that advice is totally wrong because what he's saying his medicine is actually the poison. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, yeah, it's good that you mentioned that because I, that's where I was going in terms of asset bubbles. Because I think that's a great, uh, a, a, a great um, um, phrase. Because that's exactly where we are right now. I mean, in terms of uh, what you might call a mania. Uh, I'll give you an example. Just yesterday, uh, we saw that Tesla shares went up to I think it was like eighteen hundred dollars a share. At some point, they settled in just below fifteen hundred. But at some point, I think that it was worth. Tesla was worth more than Toyota, Nissan, and Honda combined. You know, it it, it, it stretches credulity to, to think that that's the case. But obviously, when you're talking about long-lived assets, as you are, um, you, you know, the bet on Tesla is in the future. That makes te Tesla a good bet when interest rates are low. So how do you think about this particular period of, as an Austrian economist, um, of interest rates, where not only are we at the zero lower bound, but we're also engaged in quantitative easing for uh, treasuries and credit easing in terms of buying assets that are non-treasury uh, assets, like uh, corporate bonds. Right. So what I was doing um, from 2009 through last year is I was going around when I was giving presentations to the you know people in the financial sector or whatever. I was giving them you know the the, the shtick I just told you about the, you know, the the housing crisis. And again, you can 
given that framework, it's easy to show how, yeah, the Fed pumped in money, interest rates went down, mortgage rates went down, housing went up. Then once the Fed started raising rates, that's when the housing bubble, you know, peaked and turned. So, you know, the, the, the facts fit that qualitative story I was telling. So I would convince audiences that the Fed at least had something to do with the housing boom and bust. Then I would show them what Bernanke had done that, hey, if you think keeping interest rates at 1% for a year from June of 03 to 04 might have helped, had something to do with the housing bubble, what do you think is going to happen when Bernanke and then, you know, Yellen and, uh, and uh, yeah, and Yellen had interest rates at basically 0% for seven years, which is what happened, you know, from what, December of 08 to December of 2015. You know, clearly that, and then of course, as you know, Ed, it, it wasn't merely the interest rate. If you looked at the, the size of the Fed's balance sheet, it dwarfed whatever happened under Greenspan. Right. And it was just the reason that they, once they get down to 0%, they can't really push it much lower for various technical reasons. And so, so my point was, I was warning people, if you think the 08 crash was bad, what we're in store for is going to be much worse. And I was saying that for years, even as the, the stock market was booming under Obama. And by the way, is an extra, if people just chart the S&P 500 index against the Fed's balance sheet, and you know, it, it, they fit hand in glove from like 09 to basically since, until Trump gets elected. And then the stock market seems to go up, even though the Fed wasn't inflating. So you know that that wasn't crazy talk for me to say the 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 stock market under Obama was driven by the Fed, not by his great you know policies that that held fundamentals. So to answer your question, so the the stuff that we saw happen and the the yield curve inverted you know in the summer of 2019. So I was warning people there was going to be a big crash by this summer, summer of 2020. Now it did happen, but of course the coronavirus also hit too. So it's, right. it, you know it's sort of like. I don't get to take credit for because we was oh you got lucky, but you know I was like well <laughs> I wasn't wrong, <laughs> so um, so in my view the distortions that accumulated from 2009 onward are massive, way bigger than what happened during the housing bubble years. We were due for a huge crash. We did see some of it, and now we're still lingering. But again, it's kind of cloaked under the coronavirus panic. Um, and then yeah, what the Fed's doing now even dwarfs what Bernanke did. And so both qualitative or sorry, both quantitatively and like you say, not even qualitatively where they're buying individual corporate bonds. Right. So even, yeah. so even forget, you know, like technical economics, just in terms of political economy and just history and you know political science there, the temptation of corruption is just astonishing to me. So, so the way what, what the, I think the Fed chairs have been doing, at least Bernanke and Powell, Yellen actually didn't do this, was they were expanding their power, kind of like FDR. Like during the crisis of the Great Depression, FDR greatly expanded the powers of the federal government. Whether people think that was a good thing or a bad thing, he clearly did it. And likewise, the Fed's doing stuff now that would have been inconceivable in 2005. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, people are talking about yield curve control coming up next and things of that nature. You, uh, there are two jumping off points here that I'm thinking about in particular. One is the potential for uh, the overwhelming uh, wall of liquidity to do what it did in 2008. I think we can save that for a second because this is that's a forward-looking statement. But I want to talk about the political economy because you talked about the political economy. And the way that I'm thinking about it is how can you resist the urge to blow up uh, the, the Fed's balance sheet, to blow up the asset bubble when we all know that uh, assets, when, when you have an asset, let's use housing as an example, that's an asset that you can use to leverage into spending. 
it, it does it boost up the economy over the short term, over even the medium term, it boosts up the economy. If my house price goes up, I'm wealthier. I could even you know use the use it as a piggy bank in order to extract that wealth. If st- my stocks go up, I can use that as collateral for loans, and I can make I can have spending associated with that. And the economy moves up; it boosts forward. And I, if I as the the politician want to get reelected, is that not what I want to see? Oh, it, it, exactly. So the, yeah, that's the. Um the problem or the perversity of this stuff that suppose the Austrians are right, or at least, you know, they're, they're telling an important part of the story of where, where does the business cycle come from in our time? The reason that keep, it would keep happening, even if the Austrians are right, is that, as you say, if we're in the middle of a, a bad recession, what's the Austrian solution? Don't do anything. Let's just wait. And this eventually will fix itself. And no politician or federal reserve chairman wants to be seen as doing nothing while people are suffering. And so it always seems to be, the case. Oh, and especially the problem with, you know, having the Fed now being able to do it is so when the federal government tries to do relief programs, that makes the official federal debt go up. And so voters don't like that because, you know, they have this this idea that, oh, wait a minute, I don't want the Uncle Sam to be in debt to people. So they're leery about that. Whereas if the Fed just creates a bunch of money and buys assets, and particularly if, as in our time, it doesn't immediately make gasoline cost $10 a gallon, it looks like that's free money. Like there's there's no downside. So why would the Fed just create more money and buy stuff and prop like you say prop up assets uh, that might spur more hiring and things like that? So it's very pernicious that yes, all the chips are stacked against what I think is the correct, disciplined, long term solution, which is to just stop these interventions and let the you know the male investments get washed out. It just keeps setting us up for recurring boom bust cycles. But even worse as we've seen, they're going to keep getting higher and higher in amplitude because right. each time now, because the, the new problem is so much worse than it was the last crash, the Fed has to do the, even that much more to get traction to, to solve something. And so, um, unfortunately, I think that's just going to keep happening until finally the dollar crashes. That's going to be the only thing that will s- snap us out of this and realize we can't just keep having the Fed create a, trillions of dollars to solve a problem limping from crisis to crisis, the only thing that will stop that is if the dollar crashes. You know, that's the the forward looking part of this in terms of, you know, right now we're at a point where uh, there are many people who are saying in the market that we're early cycle. That is, they're looking at the stock market and as prognosticators are saying, you know, we think that we actually we're early cycle, meaning that the recession was really short and it's over now. And now we're moving into a new business cycle. And obviously, if that's the case, what they're saying um, implicitly is, is, is that the Fed's wall of money, the Fed's action has has overwhelmed the negative impact of the recession to the point where we're now starting the next boom, which you're saying is going to be worse in terms of malinvestment, in terms of the crash that happens subsequently. My question to you, is that even an accurate depiction of where we are right now? Uh, Is it true that we're actually potentially in a new business cycle, uh, that the Fed's wall of money has overwhelmed uh, the negative effects of the recession? Okay, yeah, great question. And um, I actually, so I have a a financial publication that I do um, for subscribers, and and that is that's literally what we're covering this this particular month's issue is this question of, 
you know, we know standard Austrian business cycle theory, you know, the Fed blows up a bubble, there's a crash, the Fed comes in with low interest rates and easy money that blows up another bubble. And the question is right now, where are we? Because clearly the Fed, you know, pulled out all the stops and, and, and pumped in a bunch of money and cut interest rates back down to zero. So yes, yeah, like investors in particular, do they think the stock market now is going to have another upswing for a while before there's a, a huge crash? So, um, so the quick answer is, I don't know. And like you say, this is the issue with Austrian economics. It doesn't allow for precise quantitative measures. It's more qualitative to understand, you know, processes and to get a sense of, you know, different causal factors and other things equal. What does this do? But to then put all those things together to say on net, what's the result? You know, that's more of a judgment call. So I happen to think that, no, that right now we're still working through the male investments. So I, and I could be wrong. So here, I'm just saying this is my personal judgment. Um, and where I'm coming from is the last one, the Fed cut interest rates down to zero and was pumping in money with QE and still the recession lingered for a while, you know, and, and even the, the, alleged recovery was very lackluster, right. although the stock market was booming. But in terms of like the real fundamentals, the labor market took a while to even get back to the total employment at the peak before the 08 crash. So I think it's going to be like that this time around that, um, especially you know, with, the, with the coronavirus threat still being there, if they extend the unemployment benefits and things like that, I think the, the uh, unemployment rate is going to still remain in at high levels, you know, for a while, even though the stock market might, might be pumped up. So that's my long way of saying, I, I think we're still going to be in a bad economy at least for another year. Right. But I, but again, that's just a judgment call. I, I Austrian theory per se doesn't give you that. That's more of a trying to figure out where are you in the cycle. Right. And, you know, some of that has to do with policy um, uh, constraints or policy initiatives, meaning that, you know, uh, how far is the Fed willing to go? How far is the federal government willing to go? You know, this past month, June, was a month of over $800 billion of deficit spending. So mm -hmm. if you continue that over a longer period of time, that's definitely going to overwhelm some of the recessionary impulses and that combined with uh, with Fed largesse could get you to where you want to be. So, you know, going back to what you were saying about the great financial crisis, you know, it the recession officially ended in March, but we had rounds QE1, QE2, QE3, Operation Twist. That tells you that they were still pumping in the money. They were still giving uh, the, uh, the, the, the spending uh, to, in order to keep the economy going. And so you can't really know what's going to happen going forward unless you know what kind of policy response you're going to get. Yeah. And by the way, so let me just clarify, because you, you made a good point. Because this has been superimposed with the coronavirus stuff. So yeah, it certainly unemployment shot way up and then it's coming down and GDP fell off a cliff and now it's going to recover somewhat. So you're right. Like the way the NB, the National Bureau of Economic Research, the way they classify peak to trough and the cycle... They might officially say we're in a recovery, but I'm saying right. if fourth quarter 2020 and unemployment are at levels that would have been considered a recession had we not had the coronavirus stuff, that's, that's what I'm saying. Right. You, you get what I mean? Like right. yeah, words, definitely. GDP growth could still be lower then than it was in fourth quarter 2019, but yet it might be showing a growth relative to how awful it was second quarter 2020. So even though they would say, oh, see, the economy's growing, I want to say, yeah, but if it's still less than what it would have been 
you know, the, then we're still lower than the trajectory that was on pace at the end of 2019. So that, that that's what I'm saying when I say I think the economy is going to be in this rut at least for another year is we're not going to be where you would have thought we would have been at the end of 2019 if you thought it was smooth sailing. Right. And, and you know, uh, when you make that analysis, you're pointing out almost implicitly, and I think you said this explicitly before, that the the stock market uh, asset prices could go up while that's all that's occurring. And I think this is a big uh, what I would call political economy issue, inequality. That is, is, is that people who own assets, they're benefiting from the largesse of the Fed while the real economy is stagnant. The, the numbers that you're going to see coming out in 2021 are going to be below the numbers that you saw at the end of 2019. What does that do? Uh, to you know the economy in terms of the cohesion of people feeling like you know we're all in this together. Okay, great, yeah, great question. So it's interesting because, as I'm sure your listeners could probably guess, like I'm very libertarian in my policy views, and I'm, I'm against you know redistribution of wealth and stuff like that. But yet, I think if if um, like what the Fed does and these things. That that causes way more inequality than if we had, you know, either no Federal Reserve at all or a Fed that was constrained by the gold standard, things like that. So I, I think you're right. Inequality is going to get exacerbated by this. Also, too, that uh, in terms of which businesses are deemed essential or not, I think there was a lot of favoritism there. Whereas, you know, a big company where you know the the CEO like knows the governor and so like I think they're going to be able to you know continue. Whereas it's the smaller uh, individual mom and pop shops, or whatever, they're going to get hurt more by some of these political lockdowns. So, and, and who gets the bailouts and the thing, you know, there's all kinds of examples like that where, especially like we're saying, the, the corruption of the Fed being able to buy individual corporate bonds now, I'm sure that they're going to be, that's going to be favoring towards, you know, big rich insiders and, and not, you know, some struggling new company issuing bonds. So, all that that's to say is, yeah, I agree with you that. People are going to be hurting, and unfortunately, I think what's going to happen is they're going to misunderstand what happened, and they're going to blame capitalism or something, even right. though it's clearly, yes. in my view, you know, interventionism that's going to be causing that. But yeah, it's the the measures of wealth inequality and stuff like that. I think are going to go way up going forward for for all these reasons. You know, uh, you mentioned something about gold there. I want to end the conversation talking about gold and the dollar, because earlier you talked about, you know, the dollar's collapse being uh, the only way that you're going to end this cycle, this boom bust cycle. Um, I'm thinking about the gold standard. I'm thinking about uh, Bretton Woods. Talk to me about how you think about uh, the gold anchor and fiat currency and uh, the dollar going forward and also going back, if you will. Meaning we had those standards in the past. Now we're living in a fiat currency world and potentially the dollar could take it on the chin as a result of of everything that's happening now. Okay, yeah. So by the way, I just want to clarify, I'm not predicting an imminent dollar collapse. Right, right. I'm saying that would be the only thing that would, and you you didn't put words in my mouth. I just want to make sure the listeners don't misunderstand what I was saying. Um, so, So yeah, so historically, and people like Ludwig von Mises, you know, the one of the important Austrian economists of the 20th century, the way he's he said the the classical gold standard, like the the system in place before World War One, he said that was almost like um 
like, like comparable to the Bill of Rights. He was saying the point of that, it wasn't a technical economic thing about, oh, what's the best way to optimize growth? It was a way to constrain government abuse. That one way, you know, the government could lock you up for, um, you know, saying things against the regime. And so the guarantee of freedom of speech and a Bill of Rights, that was to protect the government. You know, the government didn't have the right to do that. They couldn't stop from what you wrote in a paper against them. Likewise, the rationale from a classical liberal perspective of the gold standard was to, to prevent the government from debasing the currency. They couldn't run the printing press too recklessly because then if they're pledged to redeem you know, their paper for a certain weight of gold, they would lose their gold reserves if they printed too much. So that was the function. It was to restrain government so they couldn't rob the people by just printing money and stealing their purchasing power. Okay, So, so that was the, the function of it. And then, as we saw, when does the gold standard go out the window when there's major wars? And then, you know, they went back to it and right. then after, after world. So, you know, that it to me, for people who are anti-war, especially like anti-war leftists, they should love the gold standard. They should realize the gold standard is the thing standing in the way between world war. And, you know, and even opponents of the gold standard would admit that. They would say, well, what if there's a crisis? What if we have to go to war? We can't be, can have our hands tied by this stupid pledge to gold. So everybody admits that the gold standard prevents you from going to a world war. <laughs> so um, it's ironic to me that like a particular like, like leftists tend to think of the gold standard as this, you know, bourgeois institution or something that constrains government from helping. But again, it also constrains the government from doing really horrible things. So at this point, I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's a hopeless cause. Like I don't agitate for a return of the gold standard because they would just go off it again when there was the next crisis. But clearly to me, it, it would see, you know, show that these boom bust cycles were exacerbated once the Fed was formed, right? So think of it this way. When was the worst crisis in U.S. history? The 1930s. The Fed was formed in 1913, right? So the Fed had been in, in operation for 17 years to allegedly smooth out the business cycle. And then we got the worst one in history. So clearly the Fed and then removing the gold standard isn't doing you know, what the, the proponents of those policies say they are. A last point I'll make about the inequality stuff. The conventional measures by which people try to show that, oh, like, you know, median workers' wages have been stagnant while, you know, the top 10% have seen rise. Those things, they, they lead you to believe it happened in the Reagan years. But if you actually look at the statistics, that turnaround starts in the early 70s as to when all of a sudden, for some reason, it seemed like the workers hit a wall and weren't gaining anymore. Right. right. And what happened in the early 70s, Nixon took us off the gold standard officially. So I would say that's not a coincidence. It was going off gold that really marked the turnaround in you know, these standard measures of, of how are the middle class or the working class keeping up with the capitalist fat cats. Interesting. You know, uh, one, one uh, piece uh, that I, I want you to address is, uh, you know, the panics that, for the reason that the Fed was formed, 1819, 1837, 1857, 1873, the, the long depression. Uh, do you think that the uh, monetary policy as used with a central bank has been helpful in terms of stopping those kinds of things from happening? Okay, great. So in terms of standard Austrian business cycle theory, strictly speaking, and so Ludwig von Mises was the one who developed that approach in, in his book in 1912 that came out. So Mises was, the, the actual theory, it, it isn't about central banking, it's about if the banking system pushes interest rates to artificially low levels, that causes an unsustainable boom that then needs leads to a bust. So 
all those pairings you're talking about, you know, we can go through and, and historically explain them. Like Rothbard, for example, one of you know, he had a whole book on one of those panics. Um, and so, what's interesting though is that yes, you're right. The ostensible purpose of the Fed was to be a lender of last resort that would smooth out the business cycle. And as I said, the worst business cycle happened right after the Fed was formed. So that's kind of a strike against it. The second worst one, the Great Recession, also happened on the Fed's watch. Um, and so even after people said, hey, thanks thanks to uh, your work, Milton Friedman, we won't let this happen again. So, um, and, and there have been people using more modern estimates of like uh, industrial output, stuff like that. It does look like just looking at the numbers, business cycles, they were less frequent, but they were more severe after the formation of the Fed. And, and, and so, you know, I'm thinking of it in terms of forward looking. So maybe yeah. uh, just as a, 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 you know, we had the boom boss because banks pushed down interest rates below a level that was sustainable. And then we had the Fed come in and they were supposed to be the lender of last resort and they, they muddled it up. Uh, both in 29 and then again in 2008 and potentially now, maybe the answer is the budget rule, as in that the Fed actually is the lender of last resort, you know, at a penalty rate, as opposed to, uh, you know, making the economy awash with liquidity, uh, do, doing that, helping to uh, reorient to, away from the malinvestment and then moving towards a new economy. Uh, and, and all they're doing is providing liquidity not providing, uh, you know, a, a backstop for for all assets. Do you think that that might be a solution uh, in the future uh, for crises like the ones that we've been having? Okay, right. And just for the benefit of your viewers who might not be familiar, so Walter Badgett, uh, a British writer in the late late eighteen hundreds, I think, is when he was writing. That's that. right. Yeah. So, so here, so he was making the distinction between a firm being illiquid versus being insolvent. So you could be, you know, a, per a solvent firm, like you're not bankrupt and your assets are worth more than your liabilities, but you might have a cash crunch, right? And so you just, oh, gee, I owe people money right now, my workers or my suppliers, but, and I, I'm, I'm profitable, like, you know, we're in terms of our sales, but it's just the money hasn't come in the door yet. And boom, I, I can't pay these people. And so there the idea was, oh, Badgett was saying, yes, the central bank's role is to be a lender of last resort to provide unlimited amounts of liquidity, but at, as you say, at a higher or a penalty rate, meaning we, we don't want firms that are really losing enterprises just limping along and borrowing money to prolong the agony. We only want going operations that are profitable. They just temporarily need some cash, and so they're willing to pay a high price. So you're that maxim was not followed in the Great Depression. It was not followed in the, in the OA credit. It's not followed now where the Fed is not only just being a lender of last resort, but it's doing it at very low interest rates. And so, um, if, so if you're saying, would it be better if the Fed provided liquidity, but at a very at, at a higher rate, like at an above market penalty rate? Yes, that would be better. But I, I, I would still prefer there to be no Fed at all. Because again, in my book, liquidity... You know, it has this nice sound or whatever, but ultimately there's the Fed's not creating more real resources. And I think if the Fed weren't there, that private lenders would be able to do that. And so, you know, there there would still be lending and, and prices would adjust and whatnot. So part of it is because the Fed is sitting there, it distorts everything. And so yeah, it's like the the worst of both worlds. If the Fed exists, 
and penalizes or retards the development of private sector clearinghouses, and then the Fed refrains from acting, even though everybody thought they were going to rescue people, that might be worse than if there were no Fed at all, right? So, uh, or that would be worse than if there were no Fed at all. So I, given that the Fed, if you're saying, given the Fed exists and everybody expects it to do something, what would be a better policy? Yes, if they had higher penalty rates, I, I would think that would cause less distortion. But again, even there, when the Fed provide liquidity, it's creating money out of thin air. And it's, you know, allowing firms to go in and buy stuff and get resources. So think of it this way, the firms that there's less incentive for firms to be careful and not put themselves in a position where they do need someone to come in and bail them out with a with an, an overnight loan of a billion dollars. And so partly why firms acted so recklessly and had such razor thin margin for error is because they thought the Fed's waiting there. They wouldn't let us fail. Right. I'm saying if the Fed weren't there, maybe these firms would act more responsibly and we wouldn't have the crisis in the first place. Yeah, you know, um, Bob, I'm going to have to leave it there. You know, I have tons more questions because yeah. we talked about this. The currency is a release valve. I'm looking at some of these here. Natural interest rates, negative interest rates. We could talk about a whole lot more. But I really appreciate your giving us the soup to nuts overview of not just the history, but also how you're thinking about what's happened recently and what's going to happen in the future. Maybe we can have another uh, conversation um, going forward as well. I, I really appreciate the conversation today. Oh, yeah. And, and thanks, Ed, for doing it. And you're probably the most informed interviewer I've faced in a while. <laughs> so thank you. This is great. I appreciate your, your saying that. Thanks very much again. Thank you. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lipsandads.com now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com